All right, we're looking at Luke 23, um, down at verse 38. Now, we're going to read the story here about a man who's a thief, and he's dying with another thief on a cross next to Jesus. That's the bad news. Bad news for this man is his sin and his crime, and we ought to be able to identify with that. I know there are crimes I've committed, probably each of us have could probably find some ways we've actually broke the law. All of us see ourselves as sinners. Wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so we see these two men here, they're dying. They're dying for their sins, their crimes. There's a third one dying. It's Jesus. He's dying for sins, but it's not for his own sin. It's actually for the sin of all those, any of us, any of your friends, any of our family members, that will uh, put their faith in him. He becomes their substitute. He dies as a criminal. He dies for sin, but not his own. He dies for those who put their faith in him. The good news that's shown here is Jesus' acceptance. This man expresses a level of clear repentance. He says to the other thief, we're here rightly for the things that we have done. This man's done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus in, a, in an act, in a specific act of faith in him, it took a lot of faith when you see Jesus dying on the cross. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus gives him the exceedingly good news when he says that you're going to be with, in heaven with me today. Well, let's read this. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. In the little church, first church I had in South Alabama, a little town called Florala, uh, the church manse that we lived in, you could look out the back window and there was Lake Jackson. It was the largest lake in Alabama and half of it was in Florida. It was one of the few natural real lakes in the state of Alabama. But you could see all the way into Florida. It was a beautiful place. There's a man there that I've mentioned many times, Ed Rodwell. He'd grown up there. Uh, he'd been the only church he'd been a member of. He'd been to school in uh, Tennessee and uh, Chattanooga. He'd gone off to Davidson College and finished there and come back to his hometown. It was really the only church he'd belonged to. He was old. He retired from owning the bank. 
And he came to me one day and he says, you know, I probably don't have a whole lot of time, but I, I'd really appreciate it if you'd preach a sermon that would deal very specifically of what would happen to me when I die. And I said, we'll do that, and I think the very next week. I read from this text. The outline is just very simple. Today, you with me, then in paradise. He broke this down and used that for an outline for that sentence. That's what we really want to come to understand. These are promises that Jesus has made, and they're certainties. Um, Jesus uses that little formula, truly, truly, or verily, or I tell you the truth. He's emphasizing the promise and its truthfulness to this man on the cross, and he's promising and making that to us as well. He wants us to be as certain about it. It's no more true to the thief on the cross than it's true to us. Jesus is making this as a general promise. Now, if you're a Presbyterian in background, you know that Presbyterians always have to take a story and turn it into theology. You just can't have a story. So somehow we got to take this thing and, and make something of a philosophical, theological premise out of it. And so our the people that are the kind of the founding people in the Presbyterian uh, way of thinking developed the catechism. And in the catechism, they asked this very helpful question. What do believers receive? What benefit do believers receive from Christ at death? What benefits do Christians receive from Christ at death? And the answer is the souls. So it begins with one aspect of our person. It says the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. Then there's a major break, semicolon followed by a conjunction. And their bodies still be still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. And so the way the catechism splits this out is into two portions. Immediately upon our death, we go into the presence of the Lord. Our bodies, though, remain in the grave, resting, as it were, for a period of time, until the resurrection, which of course means when the body is raised and the soul and the body are reunited. And so when we look at what it means to think of heaven and then the resurrection, this is the way we should think about things. Now, we want to ask a question from the Old Testament. What does the Bible say about all of this in the Old Testament. And the Bible basically leads us to understand much the same way of thinking, that there's some kind of a state or condition that we enter into at our death that is temporary, and then it moves towards a time of conclusion or consummation. Uh, sometimes we talk about that, and again, put a term on it, it's not a biblical term, we call it the intermediate state. 
the state between our living and our resurrection, when we have died and when we've been received into heaven with Christ. We're not with our body. This is an intermediate situation. That's the condition of our soul. But then there's an intermediate condition of our body. Well, here we are. We're in some form of health. You know, I've got all my fingers, all my toes. I know some of you all don't. You know, you've lost something to a surgery here or there. If Orban was here, he'd hold up his fingers and talk about his, what he used to call his congenital assets, where he has two fingers on one hand and three on the other. And, you know, he's not all there. He used to love to tell those jokes about himself. But there are people here that, you know, they've lost part of their bodies, an arm and a leg, something like that. What happens? What happens to our body when we die? Well, it goes into the grave. But is that the end of the body? Well, the scriptures tell us no. It's not the end of the body. That the body is going to enjoy a resurrection, and a resurrection to a different kind of body. Uh, if you read the Puritans and you kind of go into what they think their theology was, one of the Puritans back in the 1600s came to the opinion that a person is in their prime at about age 33. Interesting, about the time that Jesus died and was resurrected, okay, about age 33. And, and so the Puritans came to the opinion that when we are resurrected, we will probably all appear in heaven about the way we appeared when we were 33. So I think that's some good news. <laughs> Most of the time, the Puritans, people see them as kind of, you know, the Puritans were those people who threw away the petals and kept the thorns. But see, they're really not that way. They got a much brighter position. And so that was their view. But there's this intermediate situation for the soul. There's this intermediate situation for the body that awaits a consummation. And that consummation is what the scripture calls resurrection. Now, the Old Testament used language that was specific to its time. And the term that was talked about what happened when a person died is that they entered Sheol. And you'll see that in the Old Testament as you read through it. Um, one of the places where you run into this in particular um, is in the book of Genesis. And the man Isaac, you remember he had all of those sons. His name was changed to Israel. And at one point in time, uh, it appeared as if Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. And so the other sons went back knowing what had happened to their brother. And they says, is this your son's coat? We found it. And it was all bloody. And so Isaac said, certainly a wild animal has devoured Joseph. And he says, now my old gray head will go down to Sheol in mourning. Then later on, when Joseph was alive in Egypt and the brothers came down seeking food, you remember he was tricking with them and playing with them. And so he said, you know, you'll not see my face again unless you bring 
this brother that you mentioned that's not here, Benjamin, unless you bring him here, you'll never see my face again. Well, the brothers went home and told that to Isaac and said the man asked specifically about Benjamin and said we can't see his face unless we bring Benjamin. And, and so Isaac says, I've already been deprived of Joseph. If you take Benjamin down there, he says, my gray hairs will doubtless go to the grave again, go to Sheol. Now, the picture of Sheol in the general sense of the word is the place of the dead, period. Now, it has some other specific meanings, but notice that it was a place, and he would go there. Now, it doesn't have the sense that he would go there in the sense of a place of termination, a place where he goes out of existence. It's a place, and he would go to Sheol. Now, in the New Testament, and there's just hundreds of terms. If you were to look this up in the Old Testament, you just see it used hundreds of times. But when we come to the New Testament, the term changes, and the word becomes Hades. And Hades is, in the most general sense, again, just a place of the departed. It's where the dead go. The dead depart, and they go into Hades. In the book of Revelation, it's the place where saints are. The saints are seen as being in Hades. So it's not merely a negative place. It's a general place, and it can have negative or it can have uh, positive uh, ways of expressing it. Uh, you can think the main way we know this negatively is Jesus, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, then Jesus says, you know, on this confession, I will build my church, you are Peter, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. Well, one sense of this, the gates of Hades, is death will not deprive the church. Death will not deprive uh, the kingdom of Jesus from its membership, from those who embrace Christ. Uh, Jesus, in his resurrection, is going to conquer Satan, sin, death, and Hades here in the general sense of it being the place of the departed. So when Jesus comes to this passage of Scripture, and again you remember we're right on the threshold of all of these things being fulfilled. Jesus is going to die. He is going to be in the grave on Friday, the remainder of Friday, probably from about 3 o'clock he'll be dead. By 6 o'clock, he'll be buried. He'll be in the grave all day Saturday. And then Sunday, the earlier hours, and then before dawn, he'll be resurrected. So three days in the grave. And then he knows he's coming forth out of the grave. You remember it was Jesus who said, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take my life up. No one takes it away from me. I lay it down of my own accord. 
So Jesus knew what this outcome was going to be. So here is a person fearful of death, recognizing in Jesus something tremendously profound in asking Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. Now, if we are just to take it from the face value of what the man has or prays for, the man's basically praying and saying, I know I'm going to die, but I know out there somewhere you're going to come into your kingdom. Now, out there somewhere when you come into that kingdom, remember me. So his prayer is something that's immediate, but the focus on the answer of the prayer would appear to be very remote. So Jesus then speaks to him, and this is probably the greatest leap forward, the greatest advance forward in our understanding of what happens when a believer dies. And so he says these words today. He says, with me. And then he calls it, not Sheol, he calls it paradise. And he lends us to know, understand something from God's perspective. So far, all of this language of Sheol, and as it were, Hades, has basically been from a man's perspective looking up. Now this perspective is from God's perspective looking down, and he's telling us something that helps us immensely. It's not merely a place in general, but it's a place of incomparableness as far as its splendor and its benefit and its beauty. And so there's a lot of texts we'll look at in the future that, that deal with this. But now when we come back again to look at these words, Sheol and Hades, again, they refer to the place, in the, the scriptural place that people go to when they, got, when they die. Now the key thing for us to say here is everyone who dies goes to a... place. <laughs> That's the key thing. Now we, we need to come to grips with when a person dies, they're going some place. Now when I get done here, I hope to go to some place. You hope to go to some place. It's pretty definite. And when a person dies, it's just that definite. Now, the place is are few. <laughs> They're either one or two. They're either A or B. There's not a range here. You don't get to pick. The place is negatively spoken of by Jesus as hell. Because as clear as Jesus is in this text that for believers it's heaven, no one speaks more about the negative consequences of dying a wicked man or a wicked woman more than Jesus. 
He is demonstrative in every way that those who die in an ungodly manner go to a place, that place is hell. If you remember what it says about Judas, it says that Judas went to his own place. That's a very disturbing sentence. Judas went to his own place. So in the next number of weeks, we'll develop the idea of heaven. We'll develop the idea of hell at the same time. So you see here that when we talk about Hades, we can be talking about good news, and we can be talking about bad news, and we need to make sure that we're being very clear that we don't talk about something that's neutral or something that is not one or the other of these places. But when we die in Christ, the new place to which we go is heaven, when a person dies apart from Christ, the new place to which they go, the scriptures re refer to very clearly as hell. Now, just to say it this way to make it clear, there's nothing in the scripture that would lead us to believe that a person is annihilated. You know, I'm reading right now, oh, it's called Pacific War Diary. It's, you want a, just an excellent book on what it was like to be a, just a plain old seaman on a warship. This guy kept a, an illegal diary from the time his ship left the East Coast, a brand new light cruiser until it came back to uh, the East Coast at the end of World War II. He fought in almost every major campaign. And he talks about people, talks about people that were American, talks about people to be Japanese, and basically to the human eye, in some cases what happened to those people would be they vaporized. They just there wasn't anything, there weren't pieces, there was nothing. They just poof, they were gone. We can tend to think when a person's gone, they're gone. The scriptures are leading us to understand that that's just not so. There is no such thing in the scriptures then as what we should think of as annihilation. Now I want to talk for a few minutes on what did the Old Testament say in particular about the saints that were in the Old Testament when they died? And I think it's fascinating when we read these things because they, they open things up for us rather than just pinch things down. The first person that we know about that's spoken like this is the man Enoch. And so what does it say about Enoch? Enoch walked with God and he was no more because God took him. <laughs> now how many of us wish that could just happen to us like that? He just took him. Now 
you know, a, a general picture here is this man obviously was God's friend. This man uh, was a friend to God. And so for believers, we need to come to the understanding is what's God going to do with his friends when they die? <laughs> and I think this passage helps us very much. He takes them, takes them for his own. So that's what we hear about Enoch. His life continues on. Now, probably the next oldest reference that we know of in the scripture is, is found in the book of Job, where Job, in all of his agony, speaks about God in the end of his life, and he says something like this, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And I will see him with my own eyes, in my own flesh, I will see him and not another. And so Job is saying, I'm going to die. And when I die, I will see God and I'll see him face to face. He goes on further and says, in my flesh, he's thinking of something that is beyond just an ethereal existence, something about this flesh that is being tormented that is going to be redeemed. He speaks of the redemption of this flesh that is all, you know, being consumed with the ravages of his affliction. That flesh is going to be redeemed, not just him, but his flesh. Now, another old one is the story of Melchizedek, that's found in Genesis 14. In, in reflection on this, this man comes on the scene and he goes off the scene, and the scriptures lead us to understand he had no beginning of days and no end of days. He abides a priest forever. And there's something here about living on. You remember Elijah. Elijah is taken up Elisha witnesses this, and he's taking up in that fiery chariot. And as soon as this happens, Elijah goes back to where the rest of the prophets are. The prophets say, let us go look for Elijah's body. And he says, well, I told you I saw him go up in a chariot. Well, he may have fell out. And they wear him out. And so after wearing him out, he says, all right, go ahead. And they search and they come back, and what do they say? Couldn't find anybody. Well, no joke. God took him up. All of these things are to be very helpful to us. In Psalm 73, now Psalm 73 becomes almost a paradigm here because its intention and its concern is particularly with the end of the wicked in the end of the righteous. And so this man, Asaph, says the wicked's feet are set in slippery places. They're going to be cast down to destruction. The righteous will be received into glory. Then he says, whom have I in heaven but thee? In other words, he says, I have someone in heaven, and it's thee. Besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. That's very similar to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's basically what Asaph's saying he's doing. His focus 
is beyond this life. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so this man is seeing in the long view that the wicked will be cast down and the righteous will be before God forever. What about the Old Testament saints when they're spoken of in the New Testament? Well, we've got a number of them. Jesus spoke of Abraham. Remember that? He said to the uh, Pharisees "Be that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he was glad. And the Pharisees looked at him and said, You have seen Abraham? You are not yet 50 years old? And then he really throws one at him. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Then they wanted to stone him because he claimed directly to be God. But the statement that he says about Abraham, Abraham is witnessing what's going on. And he's thrilled about it, is what Jesus is saying. The Sadducees came and tricked questioning Jesus. And so Jesus says, you're badly mistaking not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the dead. And so Jesus, again, is opening this picture up by the use of Old Testament saints that are still living. Well, we think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's Jesus, here's Moses, and here's Elijah. How did those three, Peter, James, and John, recognize them? I don't know. Maybe they had church tags on, you know, that gave their name. I don't know, but they knew that that's who it was. They saw him. They were there. They were encouraging Jesus. Then we come to a text like this. And this text is really a leap forward. Notice immediacy, which we want to spend some time on. Today, our catechism says, at the time of the person's death, their soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. Notice that it is with me we believe that the only way you can be in the presence of God is to be totally cleansed of your sin. And so, like your regeneration, when you recognized Christ and came to faith, you were given a new heart and a new life, you're given here immediately an entirely new perspective and strength and power. You're transformed spiritually. So now you are not merely immediately with the Lord, but you're sinless and with the Lord. And then Jesus calls that place paradise. I'm sure most of you, if you say paradise, you've got a picture of it. Uh, where I grew up in West Palm Beach, you go across Southern Boulevard Bridge, and there was paradise. It was Palm Beach. And I'm telling you, it's still to me like that. It's just like another world. The lushness of it all, the mansions of it all, the Atlantic Ocean of it all. Uh, I don't know about all the people that are there, 
but it a lot of fish chip <laughs> a lot of big fish all of that stuff to me is my idea of paradise you have an idea of paradise and you should cultivate it because paradise is a picture that Jesus gives us it's meant to expand our thinking it's meant to be something that fascinates us. It's meant to pull us in that direction. It's meant to cause us to hold loose hands and fingers about everything that we know and value. What Jesus says is paradise, you can believe you'll find it to be paradise. And you need to let this word picture grab you and own you. Well, let's pray. Father, bless us as we move through this week by week and help us to expand our knowledge, but also give us a burden for those who are lost. Help us to reach them and bring them to faith and to paradise in Christ. Amen.